Hello, this is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Best-selling author Dan Pink has opened millions of minds to practical insights from social science that can help all of us be better communicators. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, I asked Dan to share top takeaways from his number one New York Times best-selling books, To Sell as Human and Drive, The Surprising Truth About Motivating Others. You'll take away insights and ideas you can use to communicate with maximum motivating power. Dan, it's great to see you again. Always good to be with you. The last time you came on the podcast, we talked about your book, The Power of Regret, which made the New York Times bestseller list in 2022. And this time we wanted to dig into some oldies but goodies that aren't really that old, uh, but they have insights people can use like right now. And I'd love to start with your book called To Sell as Human. Okay. It says that officially... One in nine Americans works in a sales job. But you point out in the book that, in fact, the vast majority of us are trying to move people in some way every day. So let's dig into that. First, how do you define selling? And why why should people who work in a government agency or a nonprofit organization or a foundation that don't think of, you know, they're not businesses, why should they see themselves as salespeople? Yeah, because if you look at the guts of what they do every day, whether they like it or not, they are selling. Um, and the, the way I got to this is that for, for that particular book, we did a, a very large survey where we surveyed 7,000 adult full-time workers in the U.S. We asked them a bunch of questions, including a question that went something like, I might get the word slightly off, but it went, went something like this. How much of your time do you spend trying to convince other people to give up something they value for what you offer. Okay. So I am describing sales without saying the S word. And, and we, because the S word is freighted, we can come back to that. And what we found is that on average, there was a mean of about four people spending 40% of their time in this job, um, in, in doing this, doing this kinds of task. And so what did it mean? It meant there were, there were teachers trying to persuade their students to do something, uh, to pay attention or to do their homework. Uh, it was bosses trying to get their employees to do something different or do something in a different way. It was teammates trying to get another teammate to come on their project rather than another project. And so, you know, I, I mean, and I think it's especially true at foundations and nonprofits and in government. A big part about what people do, whether they like it or not, is try to move people. Um, and so even though, as you mentioned, one out of nine people in this um uh, U.S. economy are officially categorized as a sales job, which is a lot. Um, you know, the other eight and nine, the rest of us, we're selling too. I mean, you're not a salesperson, but you are. I'm not a salesperson, but I am. Uh, and I think that's the way of white collar work today. Interesting. And I hear how you're defining it, getting somebody to give up something like to give up some of their free time to do their homework or to give up a way of doing things and trying some a new way to do things. That's really interesting. Sorry to interrupt, but it's about giving up exactly as you say. I think that's actually really important. It's a, it, it is at some level, it's a little reductive to think of it this way, but it is at some level of, of an exchange. You are giving up your time in exchange for what I can bring you. Uh, you are giving up, I mean, think about with the work that you do, uh, trying to get, I, I want you to give up this belief and replace it with another belief because that or another action, because we think that that action is going to be better for you and, and for the world. And so 
Um, so it's a big part about what we do in the economy today. Um, and, you know, I intentionally for a little bit of provocation, but also just to sort of get people's attention is r really, you know, this is selling, man, <laughs> whether we like it or not. Absolutely. And it's I mean, on one level, it's a word everybody can relate to. But you said it's also kind of freighted or fraught. Say more about that. I can give you my surface impression. I can give you some some other uh, research that we did uh, for this for this particular book, which was that we asked people when you think of sales or selling, what's the first word that comes comes to mind? So you know a lot about survey research. You can ask people questions on like a Likert scale, one to seven, about their beliefs. Do you strongly agree? Do you strongly disagree? Are you somewhere in the middle? You can ask people true, false, kind of binary questions. I like this question. What's the first word that comes to mind? Because you get a kind of a more visceral sense of what people believe. And so we asked this question. What's the first word that comes to mind when you hear sales are selling? And we got, just got a parade of horrible words, man. I mean, I mean, pushy, aggressive, sleazy, slimy, duplicitous, you know, those kinds of words. And I, and I think that it's freighted in that way, which I actually think is a mistake because you know, most of what we know about sales and selling, most of our muscle memory, at least people over 25 or 30, has come from a world of, of, of information asymmetry, where the seller of anything always had more information than the buyer. And when the seller has more information than the buyer, the seller can rip you off. Uh, that's why we have uh, buyer beware. But in the last 10 years, last 12 years, um, we now live much more in a world of information parity. Um, and increasingly now, unfortunately, in a world of kind of information distortion. And, and um, I, think that has, I think that has changed the game considerably. If you look at some of the most fundamental selling and buying experiences in the economy today, they are materially different from the way they were 15, certainly 20 years ago. Yeah, sort of the word engagement has become the big buzzword in the space. It's not top-down marketing or broadcast communication. It's engaging people. That, that's a big part of it. Also, it's also it's like, um, you know, go back to those words like sleazy, slimy, duplicitous. Um, <laughs> it's, harder, it's harder to take the low road today. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's harder to take the low road today, um, you know, uh, because you're probably going to get found out. Um, and, you know, if you just look at the in, in sort of relatively basic commercial transactions and like the quintessential commercial transaction, consumer transaction of buying a car, I mean, car dealers, car buying was, you know, almost the, 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 the paragon of that kind of smarminess and sleaziness. And now it's not perfect at all. But I mean, I, I mean, in my house, like when we went in to buy a car, um, when we went to Jim Coleman Toyota in Bethesda, Maryland, you know, my wife walked in there with the factory invoice price of the car um, that we wanted because it's like, you know, we, there's no way we could have done that 15 years ago. So now there's information parity or something closer to it, which means that to sell anything, your idea, your concept, your cause, um, your set of beliefs, the actions you want someone to take, um, you actually you can't be as aggressive, sleazy, slimy pushy and duplicitous. You have to have to draw on another set of aptitude. And that those perceptions are around sort of commercial sales, as you said, the fast talking salesperson, that sort of thing. Let's shift the focus to the movement leader, the manager, the you know nonprofit person or the public health person trying to get people to adopt a new way of seeing things or new behavior um, that'll be healthy for them, that sort of thing. What are some lessons for people in that position because they're like, I'm not selling like you're talking about, right? Yeah. Although 
you're not not selling like I'm talking about. That's right. you know, that's I think that's actually pretty important to recognize. Um, I, so so on, on, on in the domain that you're talking about, I think that one thing you have to one has to reckon with, and it's a very very hard problem to solve. I'll start with the harder part first, is that with certain kinds of of sort of political beliefs and political actions, and even our assessment of any politically freighted facts, um, we are much more um, uh, persuaded by the beliefs of our of our tribe and being consistent with the tribal rights and customs than we are about actually evaluating the the facts. So that makes it harder for a little bit harder for a movement person. But 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 in general, I actually think that the um, that the the underlying principles are relatively simple and straightforward. One of them is uh, the fairly fundamental is that you. Uh, what I call attunement, which is that you have to be able to take the other's perspective. You have to be able to get out of your own head and see things from someone else's point of view. And I have found in my limited experience that sometimes movement leaders, sometimes um, cause leaders have a difficult time doing that. They, they, they're so convinced of the rightness of their cause, they can't imagine that anybody would be skeptical. And that's dangerous. And so, so there are techniques that we can use to get out of our own head, see things from see things from someone else's point of view. Um, there's something to be said for, you know, one reason that people don't like like sales of any kind is that you're going to get rejected a lot. And human beings don't like rejection. So there are some techniques about how do you stay afloat in what in many cases is an ocean of rejection. And then there are other kinds of things about fostering clarity. So, um, you know, it, it used to be, uh, and this is actually really important in any kind of profession, in, in your profession as well, uh, that it used to be that that um, you ha you you gained expertise by having access to information that nobody else had, and now everybody has access to that information. And so, but there's so much information out there. The abilities that matter most are are um, not necessarily not accessing information necessarily, but curating information, taking this welter of information that's out there making sense of it for, for people. Use, and in some ways that defines expertise. Expertise is now about curating information as much as it is about accessing privileged information. You see that in medicine um, where, you know, anybody can go um, and you, you're, it's, it's, it's only intensified with large language models in ChatGPT where you can go do a self-diagnosis on ChatGPT or I can go to, I can go and say, hey, uh, Doug, um, before I go to talk to Doug, I'm going to, I can go to ChatGPT or Claude or something and say, Hey, uh, uh, I am the leader of a uh, nonprofit group that is seeking to uh, uh, boost recycling among teenagers. Give me ten innovative ideas for how I can spread my message. You know, and, um, and and so the so curation matters more than access. And then one final thing here is that problem solving now matters less than problem finding, um, especially in a world of large language models. So, you know, it used to be that especially in professional services, that your job was to solve the problems your client gave you. And but now your client can find a lot of those solutions on their own. What you have to do is make sure that they're actually solving the right problem. And a lot of times people are solving the wrong problem or they don't know what the problem is. So so it's a whole constellation of things that actually make, I think, the entire suite of of aptitudes and techniques and responsibilities in selling and persuading, just, I think, a lot more complex, a lot more interesting. Absolutely. And everything you said is 
very much applicable to people who are leading organizations of all kinds or communicating with audiences for all kinds of reasons. That's really interesting. Think about public health. I mean, public health, we're awash in information. So a public health leader um, doesn't necessarily, uh, isn't necessarily, in the old days, the public health leader was the only source of that information. Now you have you have other sources of information, some of which are right and some of which are wrong. So I think that public health officials, as a great example, or public health organizations, public health nonprofits, they have a curatorial function. They people are being bombarded by like, does this drug work? Is this safe? Is this not safe? And the public health official's job is to sort that out and say is to curate that and say this is true, this is not true, this is meaningful, this is not meaningful. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um so much more than being persuasive per se. That said, in the book, you have five frames that help people be more persuasive. Yeah. Let's talk about those. What are the five frames? No, we all want to be more persuasive. They're just, you know, the, the, the way to be more persuasive is, is actually in some ways not, is not necessarily to say, I'm the expert because I have information that you don't have. It's to say, I'm the expert. Let me show you I'm the expert by separating out the signal from noise and this massive information we're dealing with and also trying to help you discover what's the right problem to solve. But but on a tactical level, oh, yeah, there are all kinds of things. Like, I mean, one, one example, sorry, all, these frames are super interesting. Um, and again, when we think about a lot of this is about clarity and we think about just simply the nature of a frame, the whole point of a frame is to isolate some things and disregard everything else. And, and that's even becomes even more important in this world that we're in, where it's just like there's I mean, I just look around at my desk and just the, you know, the blizzard of words and information and and stuff that's streaming in here. Um, so so one of them is uh, one of them is what I like to call the less frame. Uh, a lot of times when we're giving people options, we're trying to help people decide. We think it's better to say to give them like a huge number of options that having a lot of options is better. You can have. You know, you go to, I mean, literally, I just came back from from start, the Starbucks in my neighborhood. It's like there are like 47 gazillion possible combinations for, for coffee. Or you go to buy a car, there's, you know, gazillions. And, and and at some level, people have a little bit of an overload. So there's an interesting, some interesting research showing that actually restricting people's choices, um, uh, giving offering fewer options is a way to get more assent. That is, if you give people, you know, three options, like people are going to be less satisfied with seven, you know, eight in general with eight options than they are going to be with three options. There's also a really good, I think, lesson for persuasive leaders. Um, I can't remember the site of the research, but it shows that for, and this is, I think, germane to the folks who you work with, you know, who are cause-based and um, sort of uh, out in the public domain trying to change minds, is that um, when we're trying to persuade somebody, you know, should you have and we want to give people reasons for changing their belief or changing their action. What the research shows is that one argument is better than zero arguments. No surprise. Two arguments is better than one argument. Okay. Three arguments is better than two arguments. But four arguments is worse than three arguments. That there is a, um, that when people know that you're trying to persuade them, you want to find the three best ones and stop there. Less is, you know, again, we've heard it before, but it's true uh, empirically, less is more. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb, actually, because so many organizations have lots of arguments, lots of data, lots of expertise. And just as we try to educate our clients, TMI, too many, too many ideas, too much information overwhelms the audience. It's interesting what you're saying about choice. I remember some of the research might be referring to came from our 
our alma mater, Northwestern, looking at customer overload and too much choice overwhelms customers. And we saw a dynamic in um, working with a public health organization around uh, birth control and choices, making choices about birth control, that sort of thing. And some we saw it in our research, some of the social science pointed out that people who grow up without a lot of resources and aren't given choices and options, like growing up, what do you want for dinner tonight? What do you want to do this weekend sort of thing? Actually don't have that same experience of making choices. That's a, that's a great point, Doug. The, um, the, the, and some of that goes to sort of attunement, which is like, do you know who you're, um, do you know who you're, who you're dealing with? So there is this kind of, you know, attunement is, is, is understanding the particular person you're dealing with while also understanding some of these fundamentals, which is that human beings, you know, we, we, we see this all the time. Human beings can only carry a relatively modest cognitive load, right? It's why I think ever so slowly we've convinced people that they, they cannot multitask. Nobody can multitask because you can't bear that cognitive load. Um, uh, you can't work on too many projects, you know, a huge number of projects at the same time. You can't keep you know, and we've known this in, in, I mean, I, I mean, it, I remember in my, I learned in my freshman psychology class, this, the principle of, I think it was George Miller of chunking and like, basically it's like seven plus or minus, you can remember seven plus or minus two things, which to me seems even high. So, um, so, but, but it goes to like, so how do you become a better persuader? You become a better persuader by being in some ways, um, relentless about editing and about curating and about really narrowing it down. Um, and that sort of, so simplicity, you know, fewer is better than many simple is better than complex. Um, and, and, and also, I mean, you know, this from politics is that, you know, repetition, 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 repetition. You probably work with clients who say, well, I already said that yesterday and, you know, and that's nice, but you got to say it tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And if you do it for two years, someone out there might say, Hey, I think this dude's trying to tell me something. Yeah, data point that was um, being passed around at the communications network conference was 10 times at least. Yeah. So back to the five frames, what are some other frames that would be useful for folks in business government nonprofits? Well, there's a there's a, something that I call the label frame. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that a lot of the folks in, in nonprofits and foundations and so forth might have an intuitive sense of this. But and it seems also self-evident, but the, the evidence is, is pretty amazing. Um, sort of basically what you label something, how you call what you call something initially has a pretty big effect on, on how people perceive it. So the classic, there, there, there are a couple of classic experiments here in social psychology. One was uh, the fam- giving people the famous game of the prisoner's dilemma, where if you, um, you know, you got two people, if they, if they, um, if they cooperate, they both go free. Uh, but if only one person if one person cooperates and one person um, doesn't, then one person goes free and the other doesn't. So you have to figure out like, what's the best, you know, it's a, it's a classic kind of problem about how much do you trust somebody else? Um, and, you know, so, so if you and I were in the prisoner's dilemma, the, the ideal outcome would be for me to um, trust you and for you to trust me. But um, if, if I think I, you, I can't trust you, then I might not want to be trustworthy myself and so we end up sabotaging ourselves both. Anyway, all of which is to say that when you give people this game, when you put pe- or, or you put people into other kinds of games, um, 
that, that simulate certain kinds of behavior, certainly kinds of selfish and non-selfish behavior. And you tell people, I want, we're going to now play the Wall Street game. <laughs> More people act selfishly. If you play the exact same game with the exact same kind of participants and call it the community game, um, people are much more likely to cooperate. And, and that, that's very robust. So there's another famous study from the Chicago school system, probably 50, 40 years ago, where they, they took uh, a group of students in, in a certain grade, I don't know, third grade or something like that. They randomly divided them up, but they told half the teachers, um, these students are very high potential. And they told the other that these students are just your regular students, right? So basically identified them, called them, these are high potential students. These are just your ordinary students. And at the end of the year, the students who were identified, who were called high potential, did a lot better because the expectations were higher. So that label matters, that label matters more than we think. What I like about the label uh, frame is that, um, and, a, and a lot of these techniques is that it doesn't cost anything. You know, you don't need a budget. You just have to call it a different name. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's naming is a powerful form of framing. Absolutely. Because it's, again, you have to think about like a lot of times the framing is in some ways a dead metaphor when we think about frames, but I, I want to actually enliven it and say, let's think about what exactly a frame is. A frame is designed to train your vision towards something else and ignore everything else. And that's and, and that's what a, that's what a label does. Another one of my frames. I'll give you another one. This is this is actually a really good one. This changed my view on things. Is what I like to call a blemish frame. So a lot of times when we're trying to make our case to somebody, uh, whether we're selling, um, you know, a, um, an apartment building or whether we're apartment condo or whether we're you know trying to sell them uh, sell a, a donor on something, we generally have. Let's say we have a pretty good offering, but let's say it's not perfect. There's a there's a there's a blemish on it. The, um, that there's a, there's a downside. There's something that isn't great about it, which is often the case. Um, and almost all of us have offerings that we believe in, but very few of us have offerings that are 100% perfect. Uh, that they might have like some kind of weakness, some kind of flaw. And so the question is, do you reveal that flaw or do you conceal that flaw? And for me, I always like held my breath and said, I hope this doesn't come up. And it turns out that that might not be the right thing. There's a fascinating piece of research out of Stanford. Basically, what it was is this. They gave um, two groups of people, um, to, you know, they put them in front of a computer and said, I'm gonna we're going to show you some hiking boots. And you have to decide whether you want to buy these hiking boots. So the first group they gave, they showed them the hiking boots and they gave them a long, long, long list of, of positives uh, of how great the hiking boots are. They have waterproof soles, indestructible laces, endorsed by a hiking magazine, yada, yada. Second group, they gave the same long list of positive attributes, but at the very end, they said, but unfortunately, they come in only two colors. Okay, so long list of positives followed by the small negative. And it turned out that people were more likely to buy the hiking boots when there was a long list of positives followed by a small negative, that the addition of the negative enhanced people's propensity to buy. Why? It's a, it's a really important point that a lot of times, you know, in sort of the old school forms of sales and persuasion, we're taught that the most important question is to ask answer is what's in it for me? I want you to do something. What's in it for me? That's an important question, but it's the second most important question. I think I think the most important question is compared to what compared to what people don't make decisions in absolute terms. They make them in relative terms. And so, I mean, Bob Cialdini has talked about this for 50 years, what he calls the contrast principle. And so the addition of that small blemish triggered the contrast. You look at that long list of positives, it's great. It sounds great. 
you look at that long list of positives followed by a small negative and people actually do a little bit more work. They say, oh, they only come in two colors. Well, what difference does that make? Because look at this long list of positives. That is, they sort of more autonomously come up with their own reasons for agreeing with you. And that ends up being more persuasive. So, um, so there is some very tactical advice here, which is that if the blemish is small, okay, this is really important. Uh, if it's a giant blemish, it, you're, you're, you're toast. But if, but, uh, but if the blemish is small, it's worth revealing it. But sequence seems to matter, revealing it after the positives. Um, and then what that does is that sort of shines a light, uh, that, that, that small negative shines a light onto the list of positive attributes um, because it says, well, compared to, you know, compared to that, it's, it's nothing. So I, I'd say um, that's one of my favorite ones. It changed my own behavior. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it seems to also signal integrity, right? You're being upfront, yeah. um, which yeah. is a trust building, trust building thing to do. Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I, it's, it's a, that's another good point. Um, I, I think it's a combination. It's, it's the combination of the integrity, but a lot of it really is the, a lot of it really is the contrast. That is a lot, and this is, it goes up to something else fundamental. Is like what you ultimately want is you want people not to necessarily like assent to what you're doing, what you want them to do, but you want them to sort of reach their conclu- your conclusion on their own. That is, you want them to come up with their own reasons for doing what you want them to do, uh, because people are more likely to believe those reasons if they come up with them themselves and adhere to the behavior once they do. So it's another mechanism for um, getting people to more autonomously go to the place that you hope that they go. Fascinating. It also resonates in my mind with studies on durable attitude change. People who think about something, you know, really try to wrap their head about it, around it, show in longitudinal studies that durable attitude jet that, that persists over, over time and resists sort of counter attacks, if you will, to put it sort of a political context and is getting them to engage with it. Um, think about it a bit is what achieves that. That's resonates very much with what you said. Uh, yeah. I, that's, that's, I, there's so, a lot, so much in that. I mean, part of the, part of the reason for the durability of that, so the counter side of that is part of the reason for the durability of those beliefs is the repetition we were talking about before. That is when people hear something repeated, I mean, it's, it's perverse. It's, it's how our minds work. Uh, it, it, as you, you know, you can use it to, for the angels or for the devils, but you, um, but when, when, when people hear something a lot, they actually believe it more, whether that thing is true. Um, so, that, so again, you can use that for real or good. I think that's one of the reasons for the durability of the. Um, uh, that's one of the reasons for the, the 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 durability. And so, the idea that you can you can you can get that you can you can go to that durability with like sort of pure force is not right. You want to do something that's a little bit more kind of jujitsu martial arts, which is basically help them come to that that different belief on their own it's it's challenging but it's it's doable interesting yeah well back to the word of engagement it is engaging people in some ways curating information giving them ways to in a way that makes it easy as possible for them to sort of think it through and engage their brain more gets to the kind of outcomes you're talking about yeah and and also you know just engaging that's a great point i mean i think engagement is a really good way to look at this because there are different ways to engage people one way you engage people obviously i mean i mean charities have known this for a long time 
um, you know, um, is, is it, you, people are more likely to, we're more likely to, to engage one-to-one that at scale. So this is why charity is raising money for people who are hungry, for instance. If you say X number of people in this country are, are hungry, um, some people will be persuaded by that. But if you show one kid and give that kid a name, tell, tell people that kid's name and show the conditions of that one kid's life, oftentimes people are more, are more persuaded by that because for exactly the reasons you're talking about, they are, um, they are engaged. Um, they are, they are exposed. This is, I think one of the reasons why one of the most, I think, remarkable, um, changes in showing that, that attitudes are not always as durable as we think, um, in this country is the, the change around marriage equality. Um, so part of it was, I mean, it's a good example of this, of this, because part of it was actually the framing of the name, all right, talking about it in terms of marriage equality, but also another part of it was just people's day-to-day exposures so that they had a, they had a, a two women who, two women partners who moved in next to them in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And my God, the world didn't come apart. And those two women like mowed their lawn and walked their dog and like picked up the packages when you were gone. It's like, oh my God. You know, it's like I'm much I, instead of having this thing that's abstract, I'm much more engaged in a in a in a regular in a regular in a regular level. So that that kind of um, sort of personal engagement uh, at the unit of one is also super um, um, super uh, powerful. You see it a little bit. I mean, you know this stuff about some of the work on um, on deep canvassing, where you go and you you knock on a door and you engage in a lengthy person to person conversation with another human being to uh to to show the both that that someone who believes something you don't is not this demonic force you listen to them you engage and you have a slightly better shot at changing their minds yeah absolutely it's interesting you uh, mentioned the marriage equality uh movement the which we worked with for some time on the communication a lot of uh researchers remarked how quickly public opinion seemed to shift on that but it really did start with what you were talking about which was a precursor to that in the lgbt movement getting people to come out and tell their story yes that was really that really laid the foundation and of course smart framing and strategic storytelling and campaigns built on that for sure let's switch gears to your book called Drive, um, which I personally found very helpful in uh, building a business that, you know, takes a thoughtful approach to management and motivating people. And it talks about the surprising truth about motivating others. Um, what's what's the big idea that surprises people? Um, we, we tend to think that if you want people to do something, the best thing to do is to dangle some kind of reward, uh, particularly money in front of them. And what the research tells us uh, and, and to make those rewards as, as high stakes and contingent as possible, uh, what I like to call if-then rewards. If you do this, then you get that. And what we have now almost 60 years of research showing that if-then rewards are good for some things, simple tasks with short time horizons, but they're far less effective than we think for complex tasks with long time horizons. They just don't work nearly as well as we suspect. Uh, they can they often distort behavior. They they and sometimes can reduce performance, particularly on creative tasks. And what you're better off doing to to motivate people is not getting rid of all variable comp, but but essentially the the recipe I think is fairly straightforward: hire great people, pay them well, and offer some autonomy 
some control over what they do, how they do it, when they do it, where they do it. Uh, some mastery, which is the sense, which is the ability to make progress, get better at something that matters and purpose um, so that they know that they're making a, um, a, a difference out there in the world, which is you know what your clients are doing, um, or they're simply making a contribution internally. And that's harder to do, but it's a much more sustainable form of much more sustainable form of motivation. A lot of these contingent rewards, high stakes, if then rewards are essentially coal. They're, 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 it's coal. You're just shoveling more coal in and, and you're burning it off. It burns off quickly. It, has, it creates all kinds of externalities. Um, and, you know, it, it offers some power in the short run, but in the long term, it's really not sustainable. And a more renewable form of energy is this, is paying people well, certainly, um, but then really focusing on, on autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Yeah, and you mentioned externalities, and that's extrinsic motivation, right? We're talking about motivation coming from outside the carrot and stick stuff. Yeah, per- particularly when it's contingent. The contingent, the contingency is it, it's it's a little bit of a head fake here because it's not all, it's not necessarily like the research does not say people are not motivated by money. They are all right. Um, uh, it's not so much about money; it, it's about contingency. So if I say to you, "If you do this, then you'll get that." Um, I'm going to get, and, and I give you a high stakes reward. I'm going to get your attention. There's no question about that. Uh, and for certain kinds of things that require kind of narrow focus, it's going to work pretty well. It's just that the research tells us that for things that require creativity, long-term thinking, um, uh, more, a more expansive view, those if then rewards just don't work very well. They, they narrow people's focus when you actually want to widen people's focus. And so, um, and so human beings obviously need, you know, you need extrinsic motivators that you need to be, you know, you need to be paid, no question about it. And you need to be paid fairly. Um, but the idea that human beings, um, particularly at work are simply are, are easily and predictably motivated by dangling a carrot or a stick, it's just not empirically true. Um, or at least it's, it's not true a lot less than we believe. Interesting. Yeah, I saw some recent research on this. It was in the category of mindfulness and being mindful about what you're doing, no matter what Mm. it is. And that bringing in the extrinsic motivation, like do this to earn the bonus, actually kind of distracted people and their um, engagement in the work was less, interestingly, versus having a sense of purpose. And as you said, feeling mastery, like you're doing something you're good at and you're learning keeps you engaged in a very meaningful way that's, I guess, longer lasting. I mean, perfectly said. What about um, some takeaways um, from Drive? So we've got purpose, autonomy, mastery. Any other sort of tips or tricks for people to think about? Sure. I mean, I think that for, um, I mean, for for all of them, I mean, I, I think for the people who are bosses out there on purpose, um, we, we have some pretty good evidence that that purpose is, the single most cost-effective performance enhancer you have as a as a leader. There's no question about it, um, because it's free, and we have all kinds of evidence that it can improve that it, that it can it can it can improve performance. Um, again, I, I I do think that there's there's there are two kinds of purpose. One kind of purpose is big transcendent purpose. I am uh, feeding the hungry. I am uh, addressing the climate crisis. But there's another kind of purpose inside of many organizations, which is simply like, hey, I'm helping out my teammate. I'm helping get that report out the door. I'm, I'm helping that 
client or constituent solve their problem, even though it's not going to have some great transcendent effect on humankind. And, um, and, and one of the, so let me be, give you a specific takeaway here, which is one that I've tried to use myself is that um, if you're a boss out there, you know, this week or the week you're listening to this, have two fewer conversations about how and two more about why. One of the things that you'll do, you'll discover once you try this is that, is that if you're, if you're a boss, you have a lot of how conversations, you're always telling people how to do stuff and that's cool. That's part of your job. But, um, if you just twice turn that how conversation into a why conversation, not like, okay, here's how to make that sales presentation, or here's how to write that report, or here's how to deal with that donor. Um, just change it to a why. Okay. Here's why we're writing that report. Here's why we're, we're, we're dealing with this donor. Um, I think you'll see an uptick in performance. There's some good evidence of this. And, and also I just like the, you know, I like the, I've changed my view over the years about, you know, the sort of the relative importance of small wins and the, and the relative difficulty of, you know, even though it's seductive of big, hairy, audacious goals, I've become a, just a big believer that we get stuff done. Organizations change. We change as people through small wins that cascade to small wins. And that's this is a, that technique is, I think, a really good way to get some small wins. Interesting. Yeah, it does. It reminds me of some research out of Stanford on happiness that people striving to achieve a specific concrete goal makes them feel happy about what they're doing, whether it's in work or other aspects of life. Not big abstract pie in the sky stuff, but very specific things. Right, right. And it's a, I mean, again, this is how we, you know, this is this is what's known we're now in we're now in year two of psychology here so this is what's known as like sort of the level construal level the level at which we construe the world and it's important to construe the world at multiple levels and certainly for a leader and certainly for a persuader there's a concrete and there's there's concrete and there's concrete and abstract um an abstract belief is um i think hunger is bad um and that's important uh but the concrete belief is this kid over here whose face I can see should not go hungry. And it's really important to be able to navigate, uh, navigate both of those. And I think there is a tendency, particularly among like very well-educated, very smart people in top jobs to, to approach things at a very, at, at sometimes too high a level of abstraction and not enough um, specific down and dirty uh, concrete. But the best persuaders, the best leaders are people who can toggle between those two. That reminds me, I wanted to go back to the talk of purpose. And I love how you sort of broke it out in a couple of ways, because that's become quite the buzzword yeah. in the business world, because people are hearing about the power of it for particularly productivity, I believe. Yeah. And then there's lots of clumsy ways to go about it, like blundering into political debates you probably don't need to be blathering about. What are What's your take? Are there smarter more and less effective ways to think about and act on instilling sense of purpose in employees and others? Yeah. Um, once again, here, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in, um, in simplicity um, and having been on the boards of some nonprofits that spend a year working on their mission, vision and values only to like have those things like live on a PDF somewhere that no one can really remember. Um, so I think that when you, when you think about purpose, I think purpose is, is generally um, uh, simple and, and, and often um, relatively concrete. I also think that purpose in, in some ways is emergent. 
uh, rather than impose. And what I mean by that is um, there are, uh, there's a line of research, forgive me, I can't think of who did it, on what's, on what's known as simple beacons. That's the, that's the phrase, simple beacons. And what it showed was that in, in organizations that were truly animated by a sense of purpose, the way that people talked about it was very simple and consistent. Um, they weren't mouthing the mission statement or the set of values. They, they were talking about it organically in a way that, um, that both demonstrated and then subsequently shaped the purpose. The classic example of this, and there's a famous paper in, um, in leadership about this, it has to do with you know, NASA in the 1960s, where they realized that their purpose wasn't you know, uh, space exploration or anything abstract like that. It was, we're here to put a man on the moon, you know, put a man on the moon, six one syllable words. You know, and those kinds of simple beacons that are often um, that are often emergent can be really powerful. And a leader's job is to listen for them, uh, but also when you start hearing things that are compelling, to amplify those things. Any other takeaways um, in our last few minutes for managers and movement leaders and others in terms of the day-to-day -day dealing with you know managing people? Um, I'm very persuaded by some of the research, a lot of it done by Teresa Mobile at Harvard Business School, that the single biggest day-to-day -day motivator on the job is making progress in meaningful work. So the days that people are making progress, they're motivated. So as a leader, one of the things that you can do is help people see the progress they're making, uh, give people very quick, not like every twice a year, but like sort of in the moment feedback on the progress that they're making. And even as individuals, be, you know, take a moment at the end of the day to think about, you know, write down three ways you made progress. I'm a big fan of that particular technique. So at the end of each day, just list three ways you made progress that day. And that helps you actually see, you don't have to look at that list again. See, I mean, I actually, I do that myself here. I mean, this is my, this is the notebook in which I do it. Um, I just, at the end of every day, list three ways I made progress. It, it becomes a kind of a punctuation mark. Um, and, you know, what I found is that often on the very, um, on some of the most frustrating days, um, that is often the most useful time for that technique because I was like, oh my God, I feel like I got, no oh no, no, you know what? I got a little bit done. And so, um, so it's, it's, a good, it's a good habit for individuals. But I would say one of the things that frustrates people out there in the real work land is that they are working, they do care, they're trying to do stuff, but they don't know whether they're moving forward and they don't know whether what they're doing has any kind of matters at all. So a leader who can answer those two questions, here's how you're making progress. Here's how what you're done. Here's how what you did today or this week actually matters. Those are, those are really, really powerful motivators. And again, it requires effort, but it doesn't require a massive budget at all. Fascinating as always, Dan, super insightful, really interesting and actionable things that we could all do right away without, to your point, spending a lot of money, but that are really powerful ways to sort of power up our effectiveness. I'm a big believer in people trying small things and if they work, keep doing them. If they don't work for you, stop doing them and try something else. But this kind of endless small experimentation is really, I think, how organizations evolve, how people get better. And I think at some level, you know, how the world, um, how the world changes, um, that, that, that 
that small experiments that lead to small wins, I think eventually they cascade into really big, meaningful, positive change. That's a great note to leave it on for our listeners. Thank you very much. Great to see you again. Pleasure.